Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Today, I will be your host, Ariel Frame, and my co-host will be Reese Patterson. We have a special episode for you planned. Uh, we have four people coming on the show. We'll have Brendan Samuels, Abby Altacredi, Alex Mayhew, and Chloe Stewart. These four students were due to be participants in the Western Research Forum that's held annually by the Society of Graduate Students. Due to COVID-19, they couldn't participate, but they could still come on the show and tell us about their work. So without further ado, on with the show. Hello, everybody. We are here today with Brendan Samuels, a PhD student in the Department of Biology. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about your research? Absolutely. Uh, so I work um, at the Advanced Facility for Avian Research at Western. And as the name implies, I study birds. Uh, specifically, my research looks at a major problem for birds um, that unfortunately kills a lot of birds. Um, the number one thing that people do that kill birds is they let their cats outside. Uh, it's a huge problem. But the number two thing, which also kills a lot of birds, is windows on buildings, on transportation shelters, all over the place, wherever you see glass outside, we have a major problem of birds flying into the windows. My research looks at both how that happens at a local level on Western University's campus, but also how do we develop solutions so that we can prevent birds from flying into windows on buildings. Cool. Um, uh, so uh, maybe have you worked out any ways to do that? Uh, what, what methods are good for preventing birds from hitting windows? So that's probably the question I get asked the most <laughs> because everybody I talk to has a story about a bird that hit a window. A lot of people have problem windows on their homes and they wanna do the right thing. And I can offer advice based on what's been done in the past, but I sometimes wish people could just delay those questions until after my PhD when I could be a little bit more confident. The truth is we don't know a ton about what a bird experiences as it's flying towards a building in that split second when it has to make a judgment call of, oh my God, there's something in front of me. I got to swerve and get out of the way. What we do know is that if you want to modify a window in a way that will prevent collisions, you have to make it so that the bird recognizes there's a physical obstacle here that I cannot pass through. What's become popular in the past is people will put a silhouette of a hawk or a sticker, uh, they'll slap one or two up on the window and they'll call it a day. And the research tells us that's not effective. What you really need to do is add visual markers that cover the entire window edge to edge. Um, you don't wanna leave any gaps that are wider than two inches apart so that a bird can't try and fly through. And you really need to make sure this goes on the outside surface of the glass because if it goes on the inside, it's not going to do anything to break up the reflection on the glass, which is a big problem. All right. So my next question to you was, do those bird stickies actually work? Obviously they don't. <laughs> um, and also not owning a cat and letting it outside. Um, how did you get into this field of research? What, what is the interest in birds hitting windows? <laughs> Um, so I did my master's degree in the same lab. I studied bird hearing, uh, which in itself was fascinating. I was actually on GradCast once upon a time to talk about it. Before that, um, I have pet birds and I've always been fascinated by thinking about how animals experience their world. Um, the sensory and cognitive abilities of animals are in many ways different from ours, but in other ways quite similar. And so this momentous task of putting yourself in the head of an animal and figuring out what it sees and what it does has always been really intriguing to me. Um, it occurred to me that I could actually use my knowledge in that area and my interest to solve an applied problem and help hopefully help some animals. Cool. And uh, so it, um, it sounds like you, this is the best way to go about it. And there's definitely a gap in the literature, like no one normally new and people seem to be, you know, quite committed to something that you, you're saying uh, doesn't work. Um, how did we, how did we like determine the difference between what works and what doesn't work? Like, how did you go about finding that? So that is a focus of my PhD. Um, what we really need are better empirical tests where we are blending understanding of birds behavior and their physiology with, you know, solid, experimental protocols so that we can say definitively what works and what doesn't. 
What's been done in the past are tests that involve putting birds inside of an experimental arena and effectively having them make a choice in which way they fly. So you give them two panes of glass and one pane has a pattern on it and one pane is just plain glass. And you see, okay, well, how does the bird choose to go towards the other end of the arena? Um, those tests are problematic on a number of fronts. I feel like I could give six interviews and still have more to criticize. Um, but I think they provide a really good foundation that I'm looking to work from for my PhD. I, I'm hoping to create the next uh, more improved iteration of that kind of empirical test so that we can really get into a bird's head and, and have a solid understanding of what works and what doesn't. Of course, there's also a lot of anecdotes out there because people have been working on this issue for some time. Um, we know that putting certain things up on a window isn't effective because you will still find dead birds there all the time. Well, I mean, uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, through your methods, you're going to work out the best way to determine not, and well, at least for now, um, the best method for, for preventing birds from hitting windows and then they can be employed, employed and then, uh, and then use the method for determining what's best to get, to keep building on it, you know? Um, so yeah, iterative process. So, I mean, I am, I'm a bird biologist, right? So that is my core interest. But having studied this problem for a while now, it occurs to me that a huge barrier to actually solving it is the human side. Um, everybody I talk to has a story about a time that a bird hit their window. People know that this happens, but because of different biases, um, because of people's tendency to rely on information as it applies to them, we minimize how often this happens and we need to make people aware of what the solutions are and why they should adopt those solutions. And I think part of that also is understanding why birds matter. Um, we live in the forest city and you know people like to talk about that, but the truth is there used to be a forest here and now there isn't. Now we have, we've got buildings, we've got concrete everywhere, we've got our campus. And unfortunately, a lot of what we have done to create this built environment introduces hazards for birds that we have yet to take responsibility for and really to understand. Um, and so I love what I do because of the people I get to talk to. Uh, if I can change a couple of minds and, and have people be aware that there are solutions for this problem, um, I feel good about that. Now, the poster that I was gonna present at the research forum talks about this issue specifically at Western because unfortunately our campus has a big glass problem. Last year I went out and I did, I conducted walking surveys of buildings. Uh, I monitored about 40 buildings in the spring and in the fall. And I also collected citizen science reports. I circulated these little business cards. I sent out a million and a half emails um, telling people, if you see a bird in trouble, let me know. Um, I wanna count it. And what I found was devastating. Um, so, between April 1st and November 15th of 2019, I documented 440 bird window collisions on campus. I estimate that my research only picks up about 20% of what happens due to a variety of sources of bias, and also that I was effectively working with just a couple of extra volunteers. Um, and, you know, those birds are dying predictably at the same problem spots. We know where the bad windows are. Western's administrators know where the bad windows are because I've shown them. We have the data, we know what the solutions are, but for various reasons, it has just stalled. And even now in the midst of COVID when we aren't really able to do our research, sometimes I'll drop by on campus and just sort of go for a walk and, and see what's there. And still without fail every day, I am finding dead birds that could have been saved. Um, so I would love to see by the end of my PhD a bit more action to remediate this because I think we have a responsibility to the indigenous wildlife that lives on our campus. Not a lot of universities have a campus like Western's. It's beautiful. We need to start seeing it for what it is because it's not always going to look this way if we stop paying attention. How do you think your research is going to impact, say, urban planning. So you mentioned the city of London and you mentioned Western's campus. Western's campus is very rich in history. We have a, a lot of older buildings and then we're trying to incorporate modern aspects like glass. Everyone likes that clean industrial look. Um, how would your research help uh, maybe future engineers or future urban designers to save, save the birds? 
That's a great question. Um, so I can speak to um, what's going on in the city of London. Um, I think this is a global problem. Um, and so it's hard to give a blanket answer to say how this is gonna impact whole fields all over the world. Wherever you have glass outside that creates reflection and there are birds around, probably you are killing birds. Um, most of this has been studied in just North America. Um, so within the city of London, actually, since I started my PhD, there's been a lot of movement towards introducing a new bylaw that requires the use of bird-friendly materials on new buildings. Um, and so I have been involved with that process, which has been wonderful. Uh, but this is an area where we really need to have better empirical data to say these are the materials developers should use and these are the ones they shouldn't. Now, another layer to this is that you can't just enforce that all over the place. You can't make everybody who's building a home or a new office tower use um, bird-friendly materials. And I should point out also 90% of collisions are happening at homes. This is not a problem with just big, tall buildings. These are backyard windows that are incredibly devastating. Um, but you can't enforce that with a bylaw. So what we really need to do is come up with an effective means of communicating this information to people so that they know what the issues are, they know where in their community they can resource solutions. And I think a lot of that is just about having conversations and connecting with people and their values. One thing I love about working with birds, birds are important to everybody. You know, everybody has a favorite bird. Birds are important um, culturally. They're indicators of the arrival of spring all over the world. And so I, I think we need to tap into that if we want to save these birds, because a lot of it involves just changing our collective behavior. What can a, what can a homeowner do? Like, I know, for example, in my apartment, I have huge, big, like, bay windows, and I have birds that are underneath my air conditioning and stuff like that. What can I do as someone that has these big windows, that has existing windows, what can I do to help minimize the impact of birds hitting my window? That's a great question. Um, so <laughs> it gets complicated when you live in a tall building on an upper floor because of course, you know, you have to modify the structure in a way that you might require permission to. And I mentioned before that it needs to go on the outside of the glass. Um, so first and foremost, I think, like I said, having a conversation is a good starting point. Connecting with the property manager and saying, you know, I'm concerned about this. I've had birds striking my window. Um, these are sometimes species at risk. Can we talk about solutions? Um, and what are those solutions? Well, on the more expensive end, um, you can install window film. So I talked about visual markers and how they need to be spaced. There's lots of good information about this. If you visit birdsafe.ca, all of the guidelines are there. Um, another solution that I think could be effective on campus is you don't need to put up markers right on the glass. You can actually just suspend pieces of cord or string outside the window. So for example, the, the International and Graduate Affairs Building, um, big glass box, right? If you wanted to put window film up on that, that would be tricky. It would be expensive. You'd have to clear cut some trees to be able to get a lift machine back there. What we could be doing is going on the roof, taking pieces of cord spaced two inches apart and just hanging them over the side and it would do the job. And research has shown that is effective. It's economical. I think you could do it on a variety of structures, but a big barrier to that is getting permission from the property manager. All right, one more quick question. Since you love birds so much, how do you feel about the geese on campus? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have a lot of sadness over the geese um, because I think they're vilified in a lot of ways. People have these uh, negative reactions and impressions of geese a lot because of interactions that happen during their nesting season. Um, geese are good parents, you know, they defend their nests, they defend their babies because they care. And I think people should try and see that as a shared value. Um, most of the year, geese don't want anything to do with you. Um, but we need to recognize these geese were here long before there was a campus. Um, these geese rely on the campus environment for their very survival. They raise their families there. Um, their habitat is significantly diminished because we put turf grass everywhere. And so I think they're making do with what they've got. Um, if you see a goose that's behaving aggressively, just take a few steps back and pay it some respect. 
and you won't have any problems. All right. Well, as one of Western's unofficial mascots, we should respect all of the all of the geese that are there. And I just want to thank Brendan for coming on to this show. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. It's been great. All right. So we are here with Abby L. Tecridi, and she is doing her master's in professional education. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about what you do? So I'm uh, currently the continuous improvement coordinator with Western Engineering. When I first started my master's, I was in a different role. And so um, um, I was uh, working with Ivy as a faculty assistant. And that's where I was tasked with coming up with um, a research project. Um, the task was um, that it uh, sh um, the focus should be on a problem of practice. And a pro the problem of practice is something that's embedded within a professional practitioner job. Uh, part of my job was um, at Ivy was assisting faculty administer um, their courses online. And um, this is courses uh, at an undergraduate level, graduate level, and professional programs. And, and so I interacted with them on their engagement uh, with the learning management system. At that point, using learning management systems wasn't, uh, was, uh, was an option more than a requirement, uh, mostly just to submit grades or upload assignments, things. It wasn't as it is post COVID-19. So um, that is now changing my focus. Uh, but uh, so my research proposal was, um, was how to increase faculty engagement with learning management systems in higher education institutions. Because as, with my experience at Ivy, I found that a lot of features in the lear in LEARN, the learning management system that's used there, um, is, are underutilized. A lot of the features are not being used. And that takes a lot, um, uh, from my experience as a student as well, that would take a lot from the students' participation um, um, and just their um, accessibility to these modes. Um, so um, there was a range of factors that influenced this. Um, um, and, and this included um, uh, the faculty's time, whether they're trained enough on this uh, learning management system. And there was also a complete shift with the learning management system. So it, so it used to be um, uh, it used to be e-zone and then it changed into learn. When they implemented learn, that's that's that was the time when I was able to uh, tell um, um, what some of the issues are and who's uh, getting on board with the training and who's not. And my operational assumption at that point was whoever did not sign up for the training uh, are the ones that are, are um, underutilizing the, uh, the features in the learning management system. So, um, so my research proposal comes in, um, um, in multi-stages. And um, the first stage would be um, um, getting all the data logs, the data queries from the learning management system to see what features are being used, which to see which features are being ignored. The second stage would be to have um, a survey uh, with the students and a survey with the instructors. The third stage would be semi-structured interviews. And the fourth stage would be a literature review to hopefully to tie all those together and present some sort of document to see how we can further engage um, instructors within their context. I mean, this sounds like it's uh, going to be quite valuable research, especially given uh, uh, how much online learning people are having to do now with uh, COVID-19 shutting everybody down and putting everybody at home. So a lot of people uh, who didn't maybe didn't do that training in the past, like you said, are underutilized or probably regretting it now and uh, really hoping they have results from research like yours. So um, the interesting thing is that two things changed since I started my research. The first one, uh, I changed my role. I'm now with the Faculty of Engineering as the Continuous Improvement Coordinator. And the second biggest thing is the COVID-19 that kind of enforced everyone to go online and start setting up their courses. Um, this uh, and now I feel uh, my research can even become uh, more advanced uh, in uh, because I've taken on an, uh, a lead in the e-learning task force that we've created in the um, at Western Engineering, and right now I'm working with an engineering instructor to develop a course for the for our engineering instructors. Hopefully, this course will provide the professional learning community environment for the instructors. 
uh, to be able to share this knowledge, to be able to show, um, um, so uh, the first thing I did was develop, develop the course outline with specific learning outcomes. And um, those learning outcomes would be that at the end of this course, they would be able to design their course online and be able to um, demonstrate their ability to use the OWL features. Now, uh, the Faculty of Engineering uses OWL. OWL is their learning management system. It's different than Ivy. Ivy, I was working with Learn. So now my focus is OWL. And I'm working with the Center of Teaching and Learning to hope uh, to um, to see what uh, um, they have. A, there are a wealth of information there to basically see what I can take from there that is more context uh, based for our engineering instructors and disseminate this information in the course. How do you anticipate, say, so you mentioned that you're with the Faculty of Engineering and engineering is very, I'm going to say very math based, very, very analytical and say compare that to visual arts or even in my field, which is geology, like we have field school. So how do you expect this to possibly change over the different disciplines? If this, if this research goes forward and is accepted and basically a benchmark into how the future, future classes could be, how do you think this is gonna reflect in different disciplines? Um, it would reflect in the tools that are being utilized within the learning management system. So, for example, in engineering, that we have um, we have labs, hands on. We have um, we have eight programs that we need to accommodate from mechanical engineer to civil engineering, electrical, mechatronics. So, all those different uh, fields have unique needs, and so I think that the um, the main thing would be. Um, I think the main challenge would be enabling the instructors and making them aware of all the tools that are available so they can be able to decide which ones work uh, for their specific course and which ones will bring out the, um, the course learning outcome. Um, I'm hoping that at the end of all of this, um, um, everything we do is to, is to increase the student learning outcome. And after um, doing some literature uh, review, um, uh, initial literature review, I found a lot of researchers saying, uh, connecting the increase of student learning outcome with the engagement of instructors with the learning management systems. So the more we have instructors trained, the more um, the students will gain, the more, the more comfortable they, they will be with using the learning management system. Do you expect to see a divide in age of people using the, the learning management systems um, compared to say like a professor that's been here for a very long time and has seen changes in the learning management systems from OWL and Sakai and all of these different ones to maybe like a postdoc who has been at Western and is familiar with OWL and is a little bit more familiar with how students think. This is a very this is a very interesting question, it, um, and that's um, instructor behavior is definitely a factor that I will uh, that I am studying, and that I, it will be inc incorporated into this research. Um, I, when I was talking earlier with the instructor I'm working with to develop the course, the very first unit in the course will be introducing the OWL tools and the e-learning kit. And now we know that we have a diverse. Um, um, uh, a, a diverse group of instructors, some that are very strong in OWL that are already using these features and some that um, are not using them. And I asked, uh, and I asked them about um, the, new, um, um, the new faculty coming in and their use of OWL. And it was mentioned that the newcomers or the new instructors might in fact be the ones using OWL more than the ones who've been here. So we can't necessarily connect how long they've been with engineering with how much they're using OWL. Their experience doesn't necessarily correlate with how much they're using OWL. So it's, um, it's broad and I'm sure, um, uh, and even, but this is all based on my personal experience as well. I have faculty that are older that are on top of this, that are just going reading this, they, they, they wanna, give the students the best learning experience. And I have other instructors that do wanna have that, but they are simply occupied with, with, other, with their research, with many other things. And um, I found with, uh, with, what, with, the re with, the, with the research I did so far, is that um, 
there's a multitude of factors, including institutional trust and relational trust. I know that I, for one, would love an OWL tutorial. <laughs> and, and you'd be amazed by how much information there is at the, with the Center of Le uh, um, uh, Teaching and Learning, how much videos they have, and how much people don't know about it. And I think that's, that's what I, I want to focus on. I want to make sure that our engineering instructors know of those resources. Not, uh, they are there, but I, um, every time I am engaging and I'm... I'm, I'm uh, I'm, I'm talking with the instructors more, I feel that they're just not aware. There are course templates or um, course OWL templates that are built and created for instructors that almost 95% of the instructors are not using. So having these course templates embedded in the course that I'm planning, having, having the, this information available and promoted to the instructors, um, I think would be very beneficial. You'd mentioned uh, a number of times uh, how many tools there are and maybe how it differs between different disciplines. Maybe can you can you give us an idea like what, what are the tools? Um, what are maybe some examples of tools that people may or may not use uh, and might and how they differ? So if you um, if you simply Google Center of Teaching and Learning and you write an e-learning toolkit, all the tools will come up from podcasts to Zoom to everything that OWL has that, you, that will help you build your course. Um, uh, and um, this also includes assessments. Um, there's just a um, calendar. Basically everything that OWL has to support you to build this course. Um, and, uh, those tools are uh, mainly focused on creating an interactive learning experience with the students. Uh, once, all of this is, once all of this is done, and I mean all of this is like COVID, <laughs> Um, do you see the introduction of online learning continuing? Like, as an institution, one of the main things is coming to Western and like going on res and going to first year classes where there's 2000 of you in a lecture hall. How do you think that, how do you think that this is going to change education and how we, and how we learn? Um. Before COVID-19, the learning management systems are already becoming a very valuable tool for, for all higher education institutions. I think what COVID did was enforce everyone to jump on board. Um, now, jumping on board is something and utilizing it things correctly is something else. Because, because some people will have their course there, but will continue to have live lectures and not know that they, there are other options that, can, uh, that might work better for your students. Um, I'm not saying that live lectures are not a good option, but they might not be a good option for everyone. And I think the big change with COVID is that currently we have to accommodate everyone. For, for online. Um, um, after COVID-19, it might not be a requirement. It would be an option. And I think that that would be just the major thing. But online learning is not going anywhere. That's, that's uh, I mean, it's good to hear. I think that it's, it's quite useful, um, uh, maybe discipline dependent in some ways. But in, a, in any case, I think that uh, there's probably a tool that's usable for any any course, and um, hopefully people can uh, use your resources uh, to learn about which tools best for them. Uh, do you have a favorite a favorite tool? If there's one piece of advice you've got, you've got the stage to tell uh, the world of teachers out there yeah. one thing. What's the one thing that's most important for them to know about? Let's presume they're already doing it uh, online. How, what would you say to them? Definitely learn the tools that your learning management system provides. See what tools are available because your institution is providing you with state of the top um, uh, um, technology. And we, I have that trust. We have, um, uh, like I said before, there's an institutional trust and there's a relational trust. We trust that our institution is equipping us with the best technology, but we just need to be able to learn about those tools and use them effectively in a way that will help our students. So if you familiar, familiarize yourself with those tools and use them um, specifically uh, to enhance your students' experience, that would be the, um, the best. Okay, well, thank you very much, Abby, for coming on the show. Um, it's been great to have you and good to learn about your uh, work and your proposal and uh, I wish the best. Thanks for coming.
Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right. So we are here with Alex Mayhew, who is doing their PhD in library science. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So could you tell us a little bit about your research? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, the question of what counts as research is uh, somewhat problematic. It's like, is investigating an unknown part of reality what's required for research? Or is would someone uh, coding up a website in HTML, would that be research? I, I don't know. It's the, the borderlines are interesting. But that's kind of secondary to, to my actual topic. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build a new uh, library cataloging system. Uh, more than just library catalogs, uh, I'm trying to make it, my, my real ambition is to someday catalog all of human knowledge, but that's, that's down the road. We'll get to that <laughs> yeah. later. Starting off with uh, materials and libraries. Um, so current library cataloging systems, we've all used library catalogs, we don't really think about them too much, but the way that the records in the catalog systems right now are encoded is it imagines that each text, so book, movie, uh, piece of music, whatever, um, can be described in sort of uh, a four-tiered way of breaking it down. Uh, so you have the actual physical book on the shelf or the CD or what have you. Um, you have, or the MP3 file on the computer, uh, you have the edition. So that's just all the things that are exactly the same. Then you have all the things in the same language. So all the things in English are one level, uh, even different editions. Uh, and then you have the work, which is this abstract concept. So free of all the different, uh, it's free of language, it's free of physicality. It's just this abstract essentialist idea of what uh, a piece of media is um, and this is very much like Plato's form so if you take in first year philosophy you probably know you've got um, the perfect version of something up there in platonic heaven and what you see around us is the imperfect reflection or shadow and this is this idea snuck its way into cataloging and we have these essentialist ideas in there which is fine, I mean, catalogs work, but uh, other fields of science have uh, had those sorts of ideas in them before and have, in overturning them, they've become much more fruitful. The classic example here is evolutionary biology. Back in the, what, 1790s, I think it was, Linnaeus uh, created his classification scheme in biology. It was the idea that, you know, God created these forms and they shall not change and that was useful. I mean, you got to start somewhere, credit where credit is due. Um, but once we had an idea of uh, evolution by natural selection, uh, that didn't make so much sense anymore. So when does a species stop being a one member of a species and become a next? So chicken or the egg sort of situation. Um, what happened is around about the 1950s, we finally got our heads uh, around the idea of both um, Mendelian genetics and uh, Darwinian evolution, and we created phylogenetics, which is the idea that you look at the descent of genes through the gene flow through various species. Well, there is a textual analogy, uh, analogy to genes. You may be familiar with them. Memes. So I suggest we could create a... Uh, a cataloging system uh, based on, at least in part, the tracing of meme flow throughout texts. So a classic example of a meme might be character archetypes, they might be uh, uh, fairy tale motifs, they might be, uh, well, if you've ever spent any time on TV tropes, uh, that site will ruin your life, but each one of those is basically uh, a meme. Uh, in fact, it's my canonical source of memes for my research. Uh, so let's take a, an example. Uh, say you're looking in a current library catalog. You've got, you've got Hamlet in front of you. So you can see all the different editions of Hamlet. If you're really lucky, you might be able to see um, a movie adaptation under it. But traditionally in library cataloging, movies and books are considered completely separate works for some reason, even though they're obviously connected. 
but you're never going to see the Lion King. Even though the Lion King is basically Hamlet. You know, uh, Simba is Hamlet. Mufasa is the, what is the uncle's name in Hamlet? I don't remember. You got Timon and Pumbaa, Rosencrest and Guildenster. They all line up pretty well. Uh, you know, Scar kills Mufasa, takes over the kingdom. Hamlet has to, well, Hamlet, Simba, doesn't really matter. Uh, leaves for a while, deals with his inner uh, struggle, talks to his ghost dad for a while, comes back. It's yeah. not exactly the same story. Big change, of course, is that um, it went from a, uh, a tragedy to a comedy, because uh, Disney. But uh, but it, it clearly inherited a whole lot of mimetic content from its ancestor. Current catalog systems can't can't uh, account for that. And I don't know about you, but I think it really would be fun to spend time in a catalog that would actually make those sorts of interesting connections. Uh, and this applies to far more than just um, uh, nonfiction, or fiction, I should say. Nonfiction examples of memes could be um, various types of research methods you use. Do you use the chi-square thing in, in, your, in your paper? Well, where did that come from? Where, what other paper did you get that specific meme out of? So the, um, the, the subject headings that uh, an author might put in their academic paper could be an example. Um, one of the weirdest ones I got, sorry, I should let you ask a question, but first, one of the weirdest uh, things I was asked about was uh, from a patent lawyer, because they wanted to be able to annotate uh, inherited connections from one patent to another to see actually if you check from this one to this one to this one there is an infringement because you can see the line of intellectual descent and it wasn't all within the same company or what have you so i think in principle mimetic descent is able to capture all of human intellectual output i don't know about dolphins probably not but anyway so that's that's what i'm trying to accomplish well, um, that is um, quite ambitious. Uh, that's uh, that's a great. It seems like a quite a challenge, um, but really, really interesting. And I like the connection um, to uh, to evolution and, and how it's, how it's analogous. Um, uh, one thing that comes to mind here is um, it seems I, I don't know how maybe this could be like automated. Like I, I imagine cataloging, you want it to be like kind of easy to just set out to be done to everything like press a button and everything in the world will have this um system applied how, how do you how do you think this kind of system mimetic system uh would be applied uh generally broadly so uh i think it's we i personally look to wikipedia as the model it really only works because there's one of them you have everyone pooling their resources you have the uh the uh, debates that happen within it. Is this true? Is that true? Can you find sources for it? You hash it out. Uh, some things remain in a state of limbo because you can't find enough evidence one way or the other. You just, you describe the, the tensions that are going on. Um, but uh, the cataloging community is conservative in a certain sense. They, they, they have their traditions, they've built them up over a long period of time, they've had a great deal of success, so they're, uh, they want to preserve uh, how they got here. I want to turn over at least one layer of the cataloging process to the general public. You can imagine they would be somewhat resistant to that, but um, Wikipedia works. I mean, it's not perfect, but <clears throat> I use it. Who doesn't use it? <laughs> um, Always use the source on the bottom of Wikipedia and not source Wikipedia itself. <laughs> yes. You follow the links when you want to get the citation. Yes. <laughs> but it's a great place to start if you don't, uh, if you just want an overview. Um, so, so do you, so do you imagine like uh, you'd, you'd need like engagement from, um, from like a mass of people have this uh, in public at first uh, publicly accessible and editable by people and just like crowd by crowdsourcing it it will it will build itself up i, I imagine that's how wikipedia works yeah. isn't it so that, that's how it starts um once you get a sort of critical mass what you can do is you can compare the uh the the database that you created by the the crowdsourcing to the actual text themselves. And then you could probably generate suggestions of, hey, uh, this text and this text and this text all have these relationships, uh, but 
there's these other texts that are textually similar. Maybe they have relationships as well. Take a look at them. And the system might be able to start automatically generating new material. Um, that's actually um, one of the things that is, in my opinion, a bit of a failure of the current cataloging system. Despite a huge amount of effort on the current catalogers to try and make uh, records automatically populated, the whole reason for that four-tiered hierarchy is so that you don't have to reproduce uh, all that work. The, the stuff at the esoteric uh, top level should be inherited by each of the various editions and languages and individual texts at the lower levels. But in practice, the actual software used does not actually do a really great job of inheriting all that stuff. Uh, but a system based on inheritance would actually, uh, in, you know, ideally make uh, that sort of automatic generation of new records far more robust. And you can go far beyond just um, uh, uh, published works, too. I mean, you can find your favorite fan fiction, you know. So are you are you looking just to see whether this is feasible? Are you like are you are you convinced it's feasible? And now you're looking how to apply it. I, I have to admit I am convinced it's feasible because I think this is a somewhat an accurate model of a more accurate model of how texts enter the world. I think that texts come from authors who are inspired by other things. I, I don't think things are created ex nihilo. But uh, my personal goal is to actually just make a functioning prototype, and I use a standard uh, Wiki, Wiki software, so same stuff that runs Wikipedia. Uh, there's a couple extra add-ons, the Semantic Media Wiki. I then download RDF files. I put them through uh, visualization software, and it shows like little family trees and little cladograms, just like in uh, biology. And they're really simple, but it's a, it's a proof of concept because I am, I am not a coder. So I guess, um, let's say Dewey Decimal System yep. to like this system. Two different if roles. You were, if you were to fix D.B. Weldon Library, <laughs> what would that look like? So, so Dewey Decimal System and the physical libraries are, are doing something a bit different than what I'm doing. So Dewey Decimal System puts all the books in one order on the shelf. That's a great thing to be done so that we can find where they are. And it's a really hard thing to do. I don't envy D.B. Weldon. I'm trying to do something entirely different. Imagine you had like a computer file folder and it had one version of every single text ever written in there with a random identifier. How would you find those? Uh, well, it's gonna branch off into a million different directions. It's not gonna be a one dimensional line uh, Dewey Decimal and the requirements of a physical library mean that you have to somehow condense that mishmash into one one single line that just snakes around all the shelves. Um, I'm in a digital space. I'm not bound by that. I can I can branch off and branch off just like family trees branch off. And you can even sometimes have them come back together. So there's some series uh, book series that are one old series and another series, and then they there's a book that's actually joining them together. Um, you can't you can't do that sort of thing easily with on on a shelf, which is a shame because the shelves actually give you like serendipity. You find the one thing right next to it. It's like oh, that's what I wanted actually. Um, I'm trying to recreate that sense of serendipity, or at least one of the uh, uh, results is that you can recreate that sense of serendipity. But it's not just along one dimension. It's along n dimensions of of uh, uh, nearest neighbors. Okay. Well, you know, I can imagine uh, with your system in place, uh, really like boost creativity with people. <laughs> uh, you know, like I, I know that I've heard, um, I mean, I didn't grow up with Wikipedia, but I know that kids nowadays will just be like, go to Wikipedia and look for something. And then that might have an idea and then link to something else. So um, I have to admit, this method of cataloging would promote that. I think, that that yeah. is, okay, that is my fundamental goal. Like. Who would go into cataloging? Cataloging is boring. Nobody cares about cataloging. But what cataloging is, is it's two steps removed from everything. So if I can make finding the answer that already exists out there 1% more efficient for everyone in the world, that has a compounding effect. So that's 1% you know, more efficient this year. That's 1.1% more efficient next year. All of a sudden in what? Uh, seven steps, I've like doubled the efficiency of the entire world. That's, that's motivating, even though it's just cataloging. 
And honestly, the best part of Wikipedia is going down a Wikipedia hole where you just click and click and click. And then I start off looking at flowers and then all of a sudden I'm into like World War II planes. Like what, how, how did I get there? That's the fun. It really of it. is fun. one of the other funds of TV tropes too, but again. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, that's uh, just about the time that we have, but uh, it's been great hearing about your work and I uh, wish you all the best. I really hope that you managed to get this off the ground. I look forward to seeing your prototype. Maybe yes. uh, post a link, add us on, on social media, and we'll all take a look at it. Uh, but thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Hi, today we have Chloe Stewart, a PhD in the neuroscience program. Um, welcome to the show, Chloe. Thank you. It's uh, really exciting to be here finally. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, why don't we get right into it, and uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So my research is in guilt. Um, which immediately puts people off when I first talk about it because I think we've all experienced it and none of us enjoy it. It's a very painful emotional experience, um, but it is a necessary emotional experience. So I always tell people that you want to feel guilty, even though obviously in the moment you hate it. It's important for a couple of reasons. So guilt is important to get you to say sorry when you do something wrong, to get you to try to fix things that you've done wrong. And then also it's important to stop you from doing those bad things in the first place. So you might think, yeah, I could steal this chocolate bar and I should because chocolate's so delicious, but I will feel bad about it later. So maybe I shouldn't. And then you just don't do something bad. So guilt is really key sort of to everybody's functioning, but there are a lot of disorders or diseases where guilt is either too much or too little. So um, a too much example would be obsessive compulsive disorder. Often people with OCD uh, experience excessive guilt so much that it's debilitating and it really influences their disease course and their ability to deal with their symptoms. Similarly, on the other side, it's very possible to have not enough guilt. So um, I think sort of the example everybody would be most familiar with is psychopathy. People who experience psychopathy or have callous unemotional traits are um, much more likely to engage in antisocial behavior, to be willing to harm others um, emotionally, physically, um, in all sorts of ways, because they just don't care about the consequences of that. They don't feel guilty about it anymore. So my research is specifically looking at the way people feel when they feel guilty, that physical experience of guilt. I'm sure we've all been there. You know, your heart starts to race, maybe your skin starts to flush a little, your hands start to sweat. Um, and we know that with all of our basic emotions, so happiness, sadness, fear, you can have a physical reaction. The physical reaction is kind of key to that experience. Uh, but we don't know a lot about the physical reaction to guilt. So I'm looking at that in healthy people and then in people with um, frontotemporal dementia, which is a kind of uh, cognitive um, decline uh, associated with aging in which these people gradually lose the ability to feel guilty as part of their disease course. So they just don't anymore and they begin to engage in increasingly um, difficult and sometimes criminal behaviors. So we're looking at uh, if the physical experience of guilt is related to that decline. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe, uh, could you tell us, like, how does, how do you, how do you measure guilt? Yeah. How do you know if someone's more or less guilty? I mean, presumably you have to do that for your study. Yeah, that's a great question. And it is hard. So, um, it's actually really quite difficult to elicit guilt from people because people don't like to feel guilty, so they tend to shy away from that experience, um, to deny it. Uh, there are a, a, a bunch of different ways. So something that we can use, so there's trait versus state guilt. So trait guilt is how you sort of always react generally to situations, so how much you're prone to feeling guilt in your usual life. And then state guilt is when you're actually feeling guilty in the moment. So maybe you walk past a homeless person on the street and they ask you for money and you say you don't have any, even though you know that you do have money, but you don't want to give it to them. Uh, and then you feel guilty in that moment. And that's kind of related to your trait guilt, but independent of it as well. So um, for my study, I do have people fill out a measure of their trait guilt. It's called the guilt inventory. Um, and that tells us sort of how generally likely they are to experience guilt in, in their usual lives. And then for my particular study, um, I elicit guilt by making people watch um, usually charity advertisements, asking for money, for help, for donations of time, et cetera, um, to try to make them feel sort of as bad as possible about themselves. I also give them a statement at the beginning that tells them that they're doing poorly. So like, for example, they'll see a video saying, um, 
you donate less money than the average Canadian and then they watch a video about how not donating money means that people are living on the street and it's directly their fault for doing that. So uh, I like to say a lot of my work is just sitting in dark rooms listening to people cry and feel bad about themselves but um, that's usually the way and then people rate how guilty they felt on uh, while they were watching those videos. I feel guilty for not doing my master's. <laughs> <laughs> You're out here doing all of this stuff about guilt. Um, maybe, maybe a little bit of a personal question and kind of related to your research yourself. How do you handle guilt? For me, so I think that I'm like, I'm, I'm totally poisoned on the subject of guilt because I'm so aware of it all the time. And people tell me about whenever they feel guilty. I get told all the time when people feel guilty, um, just constantly. <laughs> Uh, so for me personally, like I have a bad coping mechanism, which is that I'm like, I'll just think about that later. <laughs> um, I know that there are some mechanisms people can use and actually it's sort of a weird, weird way to deal with guilt. But, um, if you wash your hands after you feel guilty, that can sometimes ameliorate your feelings of guilt or you cleanse yourself in some way. It's, it's a little odd and there's sort of a debate in the field about whether it actually works or not, but there's a lot of relationship between feeling guilty and your, um, somatosensory system and then people who have who feel guilty have been found uh they'll sorry <coughs> excuse me um they'll choose to be rewarded with a cleansing object like a cleansing towel um after they felt guilty um because they want to be cleansed physically <laughs> it's very weird but that might work if you need a little bit of a boost to feel not so guilty about not doing your work during <laughs> during the pandemic <laughs> i'm gonna go wash this second <laughs> So um, my, my understanding from how you described your research, it's not necessarily that you're looking for ways to ameliorate the guilt. Yeah. You're, you're actually using, trying to find a way to use guilt itself or your propensity for guilt as, a, uh, as like a, a marker yeah. uh, of a disease state. Yeah. So um, how did this, how was this ever found out? Who, who had the idea? <laughs> was it your idea it at first? Not, it to look was not at my idea. Particular? No, so um, there's a, a bunch of research looking at the, the physical experience of guilt, primarily in people with FTD. And this sort of started out, people don't really look at guilt so much, but um, during a moral dilemma. So um, thinking if, if you're familiar with the trolley problem, basically there's one person on a, on a track and then five people on another track. And you can choose to save the five people by pulling a lever and then the trolley will divert and kill the one person. So you save five people that kill one person. Um, so they've done a lot of research in people with frontotemporal dementia who, um, while doing that task, when they make that choice about whether they should pull the switch or not, they'll usually pull the switch and they don't care about it. And you ask them how they feel and they say, it's fine. Uh, I don't care. And they also read, uh, record their autonomic response at the same time and they show no response to it at all. Whereas if you record that off of a, a healthy younger person or a person with, for example, Alzheimer's disease, they will be distressed by having to make that decision. And then also they show that physiological response to it. So um, we look at specifically, these studies typically look at galvanic skin response or the electrodermal activity. So how much sweat your skin is producing, the conductivity of that sweat. Um, in healthy people, it changes, it goes up when you're um, anxious or stressed or something sort of happening uh, emotionally. Uh, people with FTD don't have that. Uh, similarly, people with psychopathy also don't tend to show that, um, that response to emotional situations that healthy people do. So um, I'm kind of building off of that to look at guilt sort of more specifically than people have previously. So really focusing in on that experience of guilt and then also to see um, once we know about the physical reactions. So I look beyond the galvanic skin response to other things like heart rate and respiration um, and the movement of the stomach muscles. Uh, and then can we then take those signals and make a change? Can we affect them in some way to make people feel guilty? It sounds terrible, but we do want to make people who are low in guilt feel guilty. Um, because it, it can help to kind of get them to not do things that are damaging to other people or to themselves. Um, similarly, if we see those signals and they're very heightened in people with OCD, can we scale those back and maybe help them not experience such high levels of distress at guilty feelings? So, uh, one day. <laughs> so, your, your study, uh, you actually had patients come in and, uh, and do this. I mean, are you, are you still doing that study now? Uh, <laughs> No. Uh, or so, 
it's on it's on hold due to COVID nineteen um, because I work out of one of the hospitals in London, so um, we're obviously closed down for the foreseeable future. And since I work with um, a, a vulnerable population, elderly people with dementia, who are therefore less likely to follow the instructions and rules for masking and for um, hand cleaning and etc. I'm not anticipating a, a quick restart to the project. I have had um, some patients come through, so about four per patient group. So I have a couple of different um, dementias that I'm looking at to kind of compare to FTD. So things like Parkinson's disease um, and Alzheimer's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies, which all have sort of different patterns of this autonomic um, expression of the disorder as well as emotional. Um, so I have about three or four people per group, which is not a lot. Unfortunately, uh, COVID's, COVID really messes up for me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I have had patients do the study. Um, and it is very interesting to see, um, just to kind of give a, a snapshot of how that looks, people with Alzheimer's disease, they usually feel guilt when they watch a guilt video. So um, they have eight opportunities to feel guilty during my study. And usually on average, they feel it three or four times, which is a pretty good amount. Like I said, guilt is hard, um, especially because guilt is so specific to people, what they feel guilty about. You know, do you feel guilty about donating money or do you feel guilty about the environment? Or do you feel guilty about people abroad who are starving, right? Everybody has a different thing that they feel bad about. Um, so they'll feel it four times, maybe. Um, people with FTD uh, never feel guilt. I have not had a single one of them say that they felt guilty ever. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned like, uh, you mentioned an older, older population. Would you be interested in doing it in very young, like not infants, but like people that are like three, four, five years old. I mean, there's that trend going around online of like, you leave your kid with like a marshmallow sure. in the front and be like, don't eat the marshmallow. And then they go away. And then like, I guess that's, I guess it's more like rewarding, but also like, do you feel guilty about eating the marshmallow? And then getting another marshmallow afterwards. Um, I guess, would they be correlative, I guess? Yeah. Like if you could see it in a young person's brain versus someone who's already perhaps maybe deteriorating or has had a fully grown brain. Yeah, that's um, a really great question. And it is actually something that I've been involved in previously. So um, during my undergrad, I worked in a lab where we were looking at um, children. So um, specifically we looked at children who are four to five, seven to eight, and then 12 and 15. Um, to see sort of that development. So guilt is a slowly developing emotion. You need a more awareness of yourself and of others before you can develop it. So infants will feel happy and sad, but they can't really feel guilty because they don't understand their own relationship to, to others or how they're harming others. As they develop into toddlerhood, they slowly do begin to develop that. So around two or three, you can kind of see the beginnings of what we call the social emotions. So these emotions that require the representation of the mental states of others like guilt or pride or gratitude. Um, toddlers will develop this, but it's still quite underdeveloped. So kind of the fun way I like to describe it is we tell them a story saying, um, John showed Jimmy his chocolate bar and then put it back in his pocket. And when John left, Jimmy took that chocolate bar and ate it. How would you feel if you were Jimmy? And when they're seven and eight, they say, I feel bad because my parents would be angry with me and I shouldn't do it. And when they're older, they say, I feel bad because you shouldn't steal. But when they're four or five, they'd say, I feel great because chocolate's amazing. And you're like, yeah, you're right. Chocolate is amazing. That's a great point. Thank you. But they, they almost never felt bad about taking a chocolate bar. Um, so yeah, it's very, it's kind of like, uh, FTD is kind of like that flip side of they sort of generate back into childhood of not really understanding why it would be bad to take something from someone else, you know, that you're depriving someone or hurting them in any way. They don't really make that connection anymore, even though in the early stages of FTD before that cognitive decline really kicks in, but they're still showing that emotional issue. Um, they do understand the rules and they can articulate them for you, but they'll still break them uh, because they just don't have that emotional reason not to anymore. Um, whereas children are less able to articulate the rules in that way. Um, but yeah, working with kids on this topic is uh, adorable and hilarious. <laughs> I mean, this sounds like a really, uh, a really worthwhile study. I think if you could get this uh, really, really narrowed down, really precise, like this is how you measure guilt. This is how we can quantify it. And this is what we can look for in people who maybe are at risk for developing FTD, just to see whether it's like getting started mm -hmm. or not uh, would be really valuable Absolutely. work. So thanks for doing oh, yeah, no, that. <laughs> uh, I, I do agree though. It is important, especially because people note um, when they come into the clinic, when they're already in the, you know, the, the, the disease progressed to such a stage that you can see it on their brain scans. It's too late to make any changes that the brain is already gone. Yeah. Um, 
but the the symptoms the these emotional symptoms are onsetting way before that happens way way back and people it's just so gradual and slow that people don't necessarily notice it and they do but they make excuses they're like oh that's just how he's always been or she's always been a little rude right but it kind of gradually slides into getting yeah. worse and worse so if we can sort of hook people up and see like oh you're showing these autonomic symptoms that are suggesting maybe you're not experiencing emotions the way we expect you to maybe we need to start looking at if you have one of these genetic variants or something like that or if we should be monitoring you more closely so i think it, it's very important personally i have no bias on this matter but i think it's important <laughs> well uh you know thank you thank you so much for coming on the show to tell us about your work um uh, that's about all the time that we have but uh it's, uh, it's been great having you on the show thank you it was a pleasure this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host and producer, Ariel Frame, joined with my co-host, Reese Patterson. Today we spoke with Brendan Samuels, Abby Altacredi, Alex Mayhew, and Chloe Stewart. These four students were meant to be participants in the Western Research Forum that's held annually by the Society of Graduate Students if it wasn't canceled this year due to COVID-19. If you'd like to find more episodes of GradCast, we have two other episodes covering students from the Western Research Forum. Uh, you can find us online at gradcast.ca on our website or on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere where podcasts are available. We're also on YouTube at GradCast Radio. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at GradCast Radio. If you'd like to come on the show and you're a graduate student at Western University, then email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.